So as promised, we're starting a new series today in the book of Ephesians, and I'm very excited about it, and I'm particularly excited about the scriptures that we have in front of us and what God is saying to us. And today, um, there's not a lot I'm saying that isn't there in front of you. I'm just going to help you understand it, because it's going to be God preaching this message today, not me. But I want to help you grasp the beauty and the... uh, the power in what is being said. And uh, so my goal then is to, to hear what God is saying to each one of us through these words that he wrote to us. And we're going to do three things. We're going to look at the passage to understand and to enjoy it, because we're going to see in a minute it's a work of art. And then I want to look at the purpose for this presentation that Paul has given us and end up with a few thoughts on practical implications. So uh, let's look at this scripture then, and uh, you're now allowed to look at what's in front of you. And we see that um, we have uh, the first 14 verses of Ephesians. And I'm going to start by reading just verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God to the holy ones in Ephesus, believers who are in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So two things to say about this. First of all, that in letters in those times, you started off with three things. You had a from a to, a little bit like email. You know, it's from this person to this person, and then a word of greeting, Um, like a subject line, I guess, in our our modern email. But, um, and uh, so it begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the Holy Ones in Ephesus, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the greeting, if you were Hebrew, if you were one of the Jews, you'd say shalom as your greeting, which means peace. If you're Greek, you'd say charis, which means grace. And what Paul does beautifully in his letters is combine these and says grace and peace. So when you say grace and peace, it's not just like a nice expression. He's actually saying this is two communities in one, and I'm addressing you both here by saying grace and peace. It's a very beautiful entwining of the two communities together. But the other thing I want you to notice is he, that this letter is a work of art. And uh, we, we don't usually expect that nowadays when you get a letter from somebody that is going to be like artistically woven together. But in, in those times, there was a lot more attention to how you wrote things. Because nowadays, if you wanted to write to somebody, you could just scribble it out on some paper or, of course, do it electronically. But in those days, you had to get some sort of parchment or some sort of papyrus, and then you had to either do it yourself or get a scribe. And it was a lot of work just to produce a written document, a lot of work. And so you wouldn't just scribble something out. You'd think carefully and pay attention to what was written. And a common way of, of writing recognized as being beautiful was symmetry. And symmetry means you have balance of beginning and ending, and it's all neatly balanced together. And this would be something very well recognized, not just in Christian circles, but across uh, culture in those days. And so we see Paul begins with 
apostle of Christ Jesus in line one of, of uh, verse one there. And then he ends at the end of verse two, Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ, Christ. And who's in the second line? The Father, that's right. God the Father just begins with God and then gives a fuller name the second time, God our Father. And then in the middle, there's two descriptions, balanced ones, of the, the people he's writing to. The holy ones, now I've translated it literally, holy. This is my translation, by the way, from the Greek. And um, the uh, literally, it's, uh, we might see it translated as the saints. But saints means holy ones. And the word holy, can somebody tell me what holy means in the Bible? It's misunderstood very often, and I've preached on this. What's the correct understanding? Committed, devoted, devoted to God. The ones who are devoted to God in Ephesus and believers in Christ Jesus. So you notice I put a little purple um, background on in Christ Jesus there. It's, this is like an extraordinary theme in this letter. Can you see how many times on this page? In Christ or in him or in whom or something referring to Jesus is there. Can somebody tell me? Can we count how many there are? Twelve. Yeah, twelve times. This is the highest density in the whole of the Bible just in this section here. Uh, what does it mean to be in Christ? Can somebody tell me? I'm making you do a lot of work today. What does it mean, in Christ? I preached on this like four weeks ago, three weeks ago. It means joined to him, united with him. Not just, um, it's not just like he's our friend. It means there's actually a, um, a, a level of connection which is, just, which is deep and profound. We are united with him. And it's that unity which cleanses us from sin because as he died on the cross, it's counted as our, our um, dying to sin. He was raised from the dead. We get new life. And so this is like a theme in the book of a book of, um, of uh, Ephesians. So uh, that's the, the introduction there. And then we have um, verse 3 through 14 is one sentence in the Greek. One sentence. Now, most translations make it more than one, but I've done it here as one. And... Um, it's, it's one exquisite sentence that's just beautifully balanced. It's like a, a beautiful tapestry that's woven together and, and constructed in this way. Uh, like a jewel, poetic. And it would have been read aloud in a public setting. So when we're reading it, we're just reading it quietly, often not saying anything. But this, these scriptures, these letters, would have been publicly read when they were received. You know, there would be a gathering at the church. We've got a letter from Paul. Hey, let's get together. Everybody get together, very excited. And somebody would read the letter from Paul. And so their first hearing would be, the first encounter would be hearing it read. And uh, you, it doesn't come across in English, but in the Greek, it's got a lot of, of like uh, assonances, things that, that fit together, things that sound poetic and, and match together in the Greek. And it's a thing of beauty. And um, this is, God loves beauty. God has created be a beautiful world. And this 
epistle is a, a thing of beauty. And so part of why I've printed it out for you today and I've put color on it is I want you to grasp some of the beauty of what is being said here, some of the balance. Um, so uh, we have this beautiful poetic structure and I've tried to capture as much of it as I can in the translation. Um, the word order might look a bit odd sometimes in the way sentences work here. That's because I've put the original word order which look, works differently in the Greek, to try and get you the sort of emphasis of what's happening and the balance and, and phrases that are identical in different places I've marked, like in, 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 in bold or in some other way, I've marked that phrase that that's a repeated phrase, like a, um, a chorus phrase that's coming out there. So <clears throat> one more thing before we um, launch into the main block. Um, he starts off, God has blessed us. And this is really the main verb of the sentence. God has blessed us. And this is all, the rest of the passage is God's blessing. It's all about the different blessings. And so he says, blessed be the God who's blessed us with every blessing. And it's almost like the same, it, almost as many blessings as there are in hymns in this passage. But it's, and so this is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, heavenly places is um, a word that um, occurs several times in Ephesians and nowhere else in the New Testament. And it's got some, we'll be talking about it later, because it's not, doesn't mean heaven. It means like a spiritual world where warfare can take place. But I'll talk more about that in the future. Uh, so... Um, the, we're going then to look at these three blocks, which are the bulk of the letter now. But before we do, I'd like to just deal with a controversial issue, and let's get this out of the way before we go in, because this can cause people some trouble. And um, the controversial issue is about predestination, what predestination means. And um, so <clears throat> the word predestination, uh, there are there are two truths in the Bible. One truth is that humans are responsible, they're accountable, and wrong choices can bring penalties. So <clears throat> uh, human responsibility, human choice is very clearly put in the scriptures. The second truth is that God is sovereign the highest authority, and does not just predict the future, but he destines the future. Now, these two seem to be in contradiction. Like, how can God destine the future, but we have a real choice? And, but our minds are finite, and actually, we can't, we have to hold these two things in tension. Uh, we need to say, A is true, the Bible teaches it, B is true, the Bible teaches it. I can't quite figure out how God can be sovereign and actually control the future, and yet everybody have a, has a valid choice. But the Bible says that, so I'm going to go with it. Part of the trouble is that God is outside of time. And um, what does future mean for God? God, all things are present for God. So what does that mean? We can't even grasp God. So what we have to do then, and this is the... Um, the, the short answer, we have to hold these truths in tension and affirm, radically affirm them both. 
We have a real choice, absolutely, and people choose and they're responsible for their choices. Nevertheless, God is sovereign and God has destined things. Um, <clears throat> throughout history, there's been three positions on this. And uh, uh, I'm, these aren't in the order that they came up, but they're, they're the order of I'm going to describe them. The first is coming called the hyper-Calvinist. No human choice. This is an extreme. There aren't many who believe this, but there are some. We don't need to preach the gospel because the elect will get saved anyway. So, you know, like if everybody who's going to become a Christian is chosen already, why preach, you know? Why do that? And uh, there, there have been people in history who believe this, and they've said, you know, it's wrong to have a gospel sermon because you're suggesting the people can choose and they can't. God's already made all the choices. Um, then the other extreme is we call this Arminianism, no predestination, and God did his part, and he hopes the elect will choose him. He peeked into the future, and it seems they did, but, you know, um, uh, you can constantly flip between being a Christian and not. You know, one day you can be a Christian and then one not because it's all up to you. And this would be the other extreme, the Arminian position. Um, there was a, a very, in the early days of the church, there was an African theologian called Augustine. And he is like the one of the greatest pillars of Christian theology. A lot of what we believe and our understanding of scripture comes from this African theologian. And um, this is also, he was rediscovered by Calvin and Luther and others. Um, but they basically rebuilt the teaching on his, and he just, he basically, he preached grace because he was living in a time where the church had become very legalistic and Augustine discovered grace and re- his writings were very, very influential. And what he said was, he said, you have to hold both truths because the Bible teaches them. Our finite minds can't resolve the tension. We just trust. So this is where I'm going to go within this passage today. And uh, you can disagree with me. We can talk later if you like. But um, this is where I am, that the, the, this passage seems to be saying that God chose us before the foundation of the world. It doesn't just seem to be saying that, it says it. So did I not get a choice? Well, yes, I mustn't let go of the fact that God chose me doesn't mean I didn't have a choice because these things are are both true and we have to hold them both. So when we're preaching the gospel, we say, you need to choose. It's up to you. You have to decide whether you are going to follow Jesus or not. You have to choose. And that's how the gospel was preached in the New Testament. Um, and uh, the, that truth is just as important as the truth of predestination. So um, that's, uh, that's my piece on that. So let's go back then to um, um, where we're going to go with this. Uh, what I want you to do is to look at the bottom of the page I've handed out. And, um, oh, hang on. I've got one more slide on this. Um, This is a summary of the Augustinian position. Preach the gospel, assuming humans can can and must make a choice, and we do our best to persuade them. Rest in the joy and security that you were loved and chosen before the foundation of the world, and it does not depend on your constant faithfulness. So that is what I would say. Hold on to both of these positions, um, both truths in the scripture, and don't let go of either of them. Okay. Let's go back then to our passage. Oh, actually, no, let's go to my summary here. So in each block, 
Uh, there's a first block there I've labelled past. Over on the right-hand side, you'll see a little label that says one past. The second is present and the third is future. And each of them follows the same pattern. God's choice on an issue, his plan for accomplishing this according to his pleasure, his will, and to the praise of his glory. And this, right at the very bottom of the page, you'll see the slide that I'm putting up there, up here. And how, as a result, in Christ, this works out in practice. So each of these things, and we're going to look now at these three. We're going to look at the past, we're going to look at the present, and we're going to look at the future. Actually, um, I'm going to look at the, um, the, uh, the middle one last, because I want to do the others first. So let's go back to our scripture passage, shall we? So let's look at verses 4 through 7. So verse 4 starts with, an, with the issue. It starts with what the, um, the God's choice is. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. In other words, um, blameless means like no guilt. He wants the guilt to be gone. And it is for holy meant means dedicated to him. Uh, how is he going to get rid of our guilt? And the, the answer is the yellow in verse 7. Redemption, forgiveness of transgression. So it starts um, with God's choice and it ends with what happened. Now if we skip on to the, the last one, the future, we have the same pattern. The first one is the inheritance. This is the, 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 the goal. And it ends with how this inheritance is achieved for us. So, that's the green in the last one. And we have this pattern. Now, let's uh, go back to the first one, to part one. We'll see the, it's the choice is stated, and then we have three lines in verse five and six. He predestined us according to the pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace in the beloved one. So verses 5 and 6 are almost identical to verse 11 and 12. Having predestined according to the purpose of the one who is working in all things, according to the counsel of his will, and those words are absolutely identical, so that we may be to the praise of his glory who first put our hope in Christ. So this is a little poetic signal. It's like a chorus that's there, and it's slightly different in the middle. One, but we'll come back to that later. Not a lot different. Um, and this, uh, and then the end, the last one, part of it, we have this is how this is achieved. So I'm drawing your attention to this because this is part of the poetry. Uh, the poetry has got this kind of repetition of three ideas, and each one is presented in the same way. And there's a reason for this. So let's look back then at part one. And now I've shown you how it's similar to part three. I'm going to dive in a little bit to part one. Part one. As he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to sonship, and you could equally well translate that daughtership, it's not a gendered word, through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he heaped graciously. And the word um, 
uh, I've translated that graciously because it's actually the same word as grace. It's literally his grace which he graced us with. It's, it's like the noun and the verb. He's piling on the grace, the glory of his grace, which he, 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 he super graced us with on in the beloved one. So he did this by heaping grace on us. And then we have the way this had turned out in practice. In practice, it was through Jesus' blood, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his transgressions according to the riches of his grace. And here we have in these four verses just a beautiful um, painting of what it means for you and I to be forgiven, to be holy in his presence, chosen by him, just there with him, um, and just with riches heaped on us. And I want you just to soak in that for a moment, what this means. Like he loved you before even the world came into existence. He loved you. And he, he planned back then, he planned that you were going to be his, and he was going, you were going to be his forever. And you were going to be shining and bright and just covered with love and covered with favor. And, and it turned out it happened. He's done that for you. He's done that. And what happens is, it's his pleasure to do that. It's his joy. And it brings, it brings praise to him, verse 6, the red there, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So we have then this summary in these four verses of the plan of salvation from the beginning to end and how beautiful this is. So I hope you feel something when you read that. I hope like you can feel like this is God is focusing on me and it's not about what I've done, but like his, his intensity of his love is just poured down on you in these verses. He is so determined to have you and to have you his and he wants to heap you with grace, heap you with joy. So I've called this the past because this has happened to us, if we're believers this morning, we have been forgiven. Jesus has died for us. We're going, going to skip to the future. And um, exactly the same structure. The plan is that we would have an inheritance, a future, something forever. This is the plan. Again, he did this by predestining this, planning this out according to his will. Um, and... Uh, how this is going to work out. And then in verse 13 and 14, it says how he's done it. Having heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom you then believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the first deposit of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession. So the idea here is that... Um, if you want to buy something in a store and you don't have enough money to buy it completely, you could say, can I put a deposit on that? So, you know, this is mine. You could put a deposit on a house, for example, or on a car or something. I'm going to put a deposit on it just to guarantee that it's mine. And then I'm going to come back and pay the full payment. And it's like the Holy Spirit is God's deposit, your deposit of heaven. So you've got a bit of heaven now. And so it's God dwelling in you and any spiritual joy or peace that you feel, and we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks, that is through the Holy Spirit. And he is, he is um, literally the first deposit. This is what the word means. It's like 
It's the, 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 what you give down to start with. The down payment, some translations say. And of the inheritance that we're going to have. And we're going to have this extraordinarily uh, inheritance forever with God in glory. And um, he calls it the redemption of the possession. So you've got the redemption is in the sense of, um, you know, you, you, um, if you take something to a... Um, a pawn, a pawn shop, you uh, can pawn it and then you redeem it when you buy it back again. And that would have happened in those days. And it's like you buy this back and it's, it's purchased and it belong, and he's, he, he's, you're, he's redeemed you and you're there forever in him. So it's got like a, a future aspect to it. The core idea, though, that you have is this is so certain because God has predestined this. He's predestined it. It's in process and you know it's in process because you feel a bit of it already. But that feeling a bit of it is just like a proof that it's, the whole thing is going to be coming. So this is the future. And um, then we're going to go to the present. Present is a little bit shorter, deliberately, and it's a bit mysterious. So he lavished on us all wisdom and insight. Verse, it's all one sentence. So verse 8 is talking about the riches of his grace from the previous line uh, that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So there's some wisdom and insight coming here. What is this insight? Having revealed to us the mystery of his will, according to his pleasure, that he purposed in him. Hmm, what's this about? Verse 10, here's what it's about. A plan, a plan for the fullness of the times to bring together under one head all things in Christ, the things in earth, in heaven, the things on earth in him. Now it turns out that verse 10 is what the letter's going to be about. It's about what's happening now and it's about this plan God has. And, and if you understand, it's, like a, it's a mystery in the sense it was hidden beforehand, but now it's been revealed. And Paul is going to tell us in the rest of Ephesians what this plan is. And um, it's going to be a plan with amazing consequences, but we are part of it. And this is going to be, in verse 8, says, lavished on us in wisdom and insight. So it's going to be a pouring out of grace on us again. But the key idea here is that it's bringing things into unity in Christ. Everything, heaven and on earth, everything is going to be in him. So later on, when it talks about spiritual warfare and it talks about families and it talks about how you have a church community. All that stuff is about the outworking of what this plan is and how it's going to work out. And also, he's got some explanations about what he means by bringing everything together. And uh, I, I, um, as I'm reading this, it makes me excited to say, okay, I'm, I want to jump ahead and see what the next bit is, because I want to find out what this is. What is this wisdom and insight that you've got for us, Paul? What is this plan? Because this is what he wants you to do. The purpose of this section that we read today is that you should be 
you should be filled with joy and, and security, but you should be excited about moving forward. He wants to motivate you to read the rest of the letter and see it in context. Okay, Paul, so we have this extraordinary salvation from before time to right to the end, and but something's going on right now, and you're going to tell us how this fits in, what you and I are doing fits in to this super plan, and that's exactly what he's going to do. So um, uh, I'd, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited because I see how this really fits, how, how these, this description in verses 8 through 10 really fits the core of the letter. And when we get to the core of the letter, you're going to see that God is planning something in these times. Now, there's a, a very important expression here, the fullness of the times, which is used in Galatians by Paul. And in Galatians, when he uses it, he says, the fullness of time has come. Jesus has died on the cross. This is the time that was prophesied by all the prophets throughout the ages. Now we are in the fullness of time. Jesus has died. And so when Paul says the fullness of time, it's not about some end of end days thing. Paul is talking about now. We are now in this time. And God is doing something now in this time. And I'm hoping that this letter is actually going to motivate the direction of New Life Church. In fact, it is. As I'm, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, we, can, we need to implement this better in our church. We need to fit in with this better. Because this letter is about, um, I believe, something very exciting God is doing in our time, and God will be doing, and that involves every single one, every single person here. And it's not about a few people at the top of leadership doing things. This is about every part, every single part. And um, we're going to see the image that he's going to use later is about a, a body, parts of a body. And here he talks about this being under one head and Jesus is the head. So he's kind of giving some little hints of these, the, the picture language that he's using here. But um, this, is, this is sandwiched between... Two extraordinary predestination sections before and in the future, and we're right in the middle, and we are part of what's happening right now. So I'm going to just pull this thing together now, and then I'm going to just stop for a moment if anybody's got any questions. But I just want to pull this together and say, um, what is the purpose of this that we've read? Why do we have these verses here at the beginning of Ephesians. And the first thing I want to say is, let me just bring a slide that says these things and then we can focus our thoughts on this. Um, the first thing, I think this is to cause us to praise God. We're to read these and we're to say, God, thank you. Your love for me is just overwhelming. Thank you for this. So as you soak in these verses, now partly I've given them to you printed out because I hope you're going to take them home and read them again and just soak in them, just spend some time in them. I want it to lead you to, to praise God and to bless him. Say, God is so good. He's so blessed because of what he's done. And that's a major purpose. Um, Part, partly the artistic beauty and thoughts, the way it's written is to build our joy. So part of as you soak in it, you're to feel 
some joy coming through, just to feel, uh, I can actually feel this love that Jesus has, that he's done this for me, that he's heaped grace upon grace, and you, and you feel the beauty and the joy coming in. And then part of why he's done this is when we see the big picture better, we can focus on the in-between of what's going on in our lives. And he's going to get very nitty-gritty later about like parents and children and stuff like that, and like really very practical. But how are you going to do that if you can see the big picture from before eternity to the end, then you can see things in perspective. So partly he's doing it because of that. Partly... He's trying to capture our attention with mystery, like excitement. What's going on, Paul? I want to read on. He's getting our attention there and building interest to focus on this in-between time. And hopefully, uh, we're motivated to read on and find out where this is all going. And um, I'm not going to tell you you can't read, read on before next week. You can, <laughs> you can read as much as you like before next week. Um, but um, we're going to be continuing. Actually, I, I'm not preaching next week, but next time I preach, we'll be continuing this. So um, I'm very excited by this, and uh, I, I'm just, um, uh, I just want to hear what God, what God says to me and to us as a church through it as we walk through. And by the way... Um, I didn't mention it, but underneath that block, we have to the praise of his glory. And that, like, if you like, is the conclusion, which mirrors verse 3, where he introduced it. Blessed is the God who blessed us with all of these things to the praise of his glory. That's like the bookend that ends it with. So just, I'd love to talk afterwards if you've got any ideas or questions to, um, to bring up. So, But we're going to... Um, Let's close now, and I'm just going to close in prayer, and we're going to sing a praise to God. We praise you, God. We bless you, God, for the wonderful grace that you've heaped upon us from before time when you set your love upon us from the cost of sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to suffer that penalty, for the pouring out of your spirit on us as a, as a, as a foretaste of glory, for all the work that you've put into loving us and making us the pinnacle of your joy. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we pray that you would put this excitement in our hearts, that we are part of what you're doing and you have a destiny for us. Please, Lord, bring this joy to us and bring this motivation to us to serve you, to pour out our whole lives as an offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen.